Savannah will never be mistaken for Silicon Valley. Sure, we have lots of silica sand out at Tybee, but the only valleys here are drainage canals. Savannah can become a technology center, though, and a woman driving the effort to make that a reality, Jen Bonet with the Creative Coast, is our latest Difference Maker. The Difference Makers podcast is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. digital team at savannahnow.com. This is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Bremer, and joining me for this episode is Jennifer Bonet, the Savannah Economic Development Authority's Vice President of Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and by extension, the Executive Director of the Creative Coast. Through these roles, she is a leading champion for turning Savannah into a tech development magnet. This is not a new goal. It's been a dream here since Grumman Aerospace decided to headquarter its Gulfstream business jet division at the airport back in the late 1960s. To this point, though, Savannah has scored only small victories in terms of attracting tech firms and has fallen well short of hitting the critical mass needed to become the next Bay Area or Seattle or Research Triangle or Austin, Texas or Boulder, Colorado or or name the tech innovation hub of your choice around the country. Yet the potential remains, and the Port of Savannah's growth and the Georgia legislature have created an opportunity in logistics technology. Bonet weighs in on these prospects and so much more on this episode of The Difference Makers. Here's that interview with Jen Bonet. Joined on The Difference Makers today by Jen Bonet, who is the leader of the Creative Coast here in Savannah and the Vice President of Innovation and Entrepreneurship for the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Jen, first, thanks for coming on, and let's start where we always do with Difference Makers and learn a little bit more about you and where you come from and what your influences were. Uh, I know that you are a relative Savannah newcomer. Can you kind of take us back to to where you grew up and and maybe what influenced you back then that is reflected in what you do today? Sure. So, first, thanks for having me on. Uh, Thrilled to be here. Um, again, I am Jen Bonet. I am the Executive Director of the Creative Coast and Vice President of Innovation and Entrepreneurship for CETA, um, Savannah Economic Development Authority. And I am a recovering entrepreneur and techie. Uh, so if you want me to go all the way back, I fell in love with puzzles as a kid, right? There you and go. so, um, you know, I was, I was that kid that on a rainy day would do a thousand piece puzzle by herself and get it done in less than two hours kind of thing and just loved it. Um, and and then that grew into eventually a love of computers. Strangely enough, um, I had a really good math teacher my senior year in high school, who said, "You're really great at math. You'd be really good at computers." We have our first ever computer science class in the high school. You need to take it. And I was like, "No, no, no." And then he just kind of forced me to twisted my arm, and I took it. And I just fell in love with computers because it's really a puzzle, right? It's it's they put a problem in front of you, and you have to figure out how to use. Uh, the computer, and, and really language, right? Programming is a syntax of a certain language, uh, how to solve that problem. And so I spent my entire career in tech. I, I got a, a degree in mathematics and computer science from a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. Um, spent my first 10 years as a, in, in big corporations, first 10 years of my career in big corporations, uh, primarily in, well, kind of all over, but based out of the Northeast. 
And uh, then I decided that I wanted to, to live in the South. I wanted to be close to Savannah. Um, I didn't really see an opportunity for me to actually be employed in Savannah at the time as a, uh, you know, coder slash, you know, team leader of coding team. So I chose Atlanta so I would be close. And I've spent the last, uh, up until two years ago, spent the last pretty much 20 years of my career in Atlanta building tech companies, um, primarily as an entrepreneur. Um, I've co-founded seven companies. Um, I'm usually the chief technology officer, so I lead the technology team and the vision for the technology that we're going to use to solve a business problem. And, um, you know, my companies have raised over $52 million in angel and venture capital. I've had three successful exits. And um, I've learned a lot about startups. I've learned a lot about technology. I've learned a lot about people. Um, and that was fabulous. But about eight years ago, nine years ago, I got into what I call ecosystem building. And that was, uh, you know, was it on the side of my last company, I started a nonprofit called Startup Chicks. Uh, that grew to about 10,000 women across the globe where we were kind of holding events and mentoring women that wanted to start primarily tech or scalable businesses. That led me to the ATDC. The ATDC liked what I was doing. So after I sold my last tech business in 2011, they asked me to join ATDC um, as a catalyst, as a coach. So I coached companies uh, for a couple of years. And then eventually I, I went on to lead ATDC, the Advanced Technology Development Center, which is the uh, state's technology incubator. So the state of Georgia's 40-year-old technology incubator uh, on the Forbes top 12 list of technology incubators changing the world while I was there. And I led that for four years. And throughout my time there, I did a statewide outreach program. So even, even prior to that, I was familiar with the uh, Savannah area. My family actually lives in the low country of South Carolina. So that's, uh, I'm very close to my family and they're here. So that makes it easy. Um, and when the time came and I kind of felt my, my work was done at ATDC and I was interested in, I call it coming home. So uh, despite being a newcomer, I feel like this is home. Um, right. I reached out to CETA. I reached out to CETA and I said, if, you know, you might be able to steal me. <laughs> and here I yeah. am. <laughs> so I yeah. gave them the opportunity to make me an offer so I could come home. And um, yes, I've been here about 27 months. And my, my job is very strange. Uh, I have two jobs, right? And, and I really think about it as my, ultimately my job is to be the catalyst. I'm a catalyzing agent. I use that word at ATDC as well. So I'm a fire starter. My job is to uh, try and catalyze, I call it the innovation economy. Uh, it's Savannah, Georgia. So, um, you know, that's big companies and small. That's schools and you know, educational systems and private industry. And so, you know, how do we cultivate uh, a connected community? We have, a, we have a lot of creatives and a lot of technologists in the, in, the, in the city already, but how do we bring them together and really catalyze the innovation economy and, and the potential that Savannah has to be a place where, you know, high-wage creative technology jobs are the norm? So what, when you were sitting down to do those puzzles. Where was that? And, and was it a family activity? Did, did everybody do it together? Uh, so we do do it together still. Like when, when it's Christmas, we'll break out a, a puzzle or something like that. Um, but yeah, that was, so I was in, let's see, 
I did uh, kind of birth through seventh grade in Ohio, and then we moved to New Jersey. And I did my kind of late middle school and high school years in New Jersey. I went to college in Pennsylvania. And uh, I actually lived in about five different places after I graduated before I settled on Atlanta for my career. So I've kind of been all over, including living overseas three times. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you mentioned the interest in computers. Did that come from, I mean, was there computers a a big thing in your family or or what was the? No, was the household no all of my family are, my family for the most part are technophobes. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm the outlier. It was really a math teacher. Again, uh, Mr. Bretter, my math teacher, senior year in high school uh, in, in Mendham, New Jersey, of all places. Yes. So uh, he had convinced the school to purchase the t- uh, like 10 TRS 80s, Radio Shack oh, TRS 80s. Wow. Yeah. It's the first computer. Yeah, I'm old. Come on. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, <laughs> so I learned how to code basic on a TRS 80. And then I went to college and I was, I didn't know what I wanted to major in. So I was, I was taking classes that I liked, which a lot of them were math and computer science and business focused. And, and by the end of the sophomore year, when I had to check pick a major, I was basically almost done with my math and computer science degree. So that's why I chose those. <laughs> right, so. right. So, so prior to the math teacher turning you on the computers, did, what, what were the interests or were you just kind of, just kind of floundering about and just enjoying your teenage years? I was very into sports. I ran track and some other things like that, but also art. I was very into art. I actually, if you had asked me in eighth grade what I was going to be, I was going to be an artist. I was going to be a commercial artist, actually, and work in the advertising agencies. But, yeah. Drawing? Drawing, painting. I loved watercolors. Um, I've tried to, um, actually, right now, I'm trying to pick up photography as a new hobby because I don't really have a lot of hobbies. I work too much, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pick up a new hobby. So I bought a really nice camera, and I've been taking uh, pictures during uh, the pandemic. <laughs> Right. Right. So when you went into computers, was it hard to to find that creative outlet or did it just was you were all in and 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 full go? I guess I think it depends on how you look at the computers. Um, You know, I think a lot of people struggle with them, but I thought of a computer as as a tool. You know, it's a tool to help me be creative in solving a problem. And so when you're first learning computers, they, you know, they put up the the assignment is here's a problem, solve it somehow. Right. Right. And and that's the way it is in the real world too, right? Here's a, you know, one of the first systems I built in the real world was a purchasing system for uh, maintenance and manufacturing organizations. So, you know, sexy, glamorous stuff here. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when you meet with the purchasing agent and you look at the system that they're using, you know, already today, and you see that in order to do a repeat order, they have to basically copy everything and paste everything all over instead of just saying, copy this over, make a few changes, submit. Like, you can think about how to improve that person, maybe not everyone's life, but that per- I can move that person from having to spend 20 minutes on that PO that's basically a repeat order down to less than five, right? Um, and, and make that person's life better. And so, the, you know, those are the kinds of problems that I've always sought to solve in the technology space. When you get into computer science, like you did in your writing code, at that point, it's probably one of two directions you can go, right? You're, you're going to end up writing code forever and, and like to kind of be by yourself, hunker down in front of the computer, or you're going to be somebody who takes that 
and really grows it and goes more into a into the business side, which I think is the direction that, that you went. Did you get to that crossroad or was that not even a, a real issue for you in terms of which way you should go? I did actually. And I went back and forth a couple of times <laughs> and I still question whether I went the right direction. Um, uh, yeah. So there's a, uh, gosh, there is a piece. Uh, there is a get lost in the day uh, when you get in the zone coding something, you know, it's a lot like writing, you know, you talk to a novelist and they just kind of get lost in the work once they get into the zone. Right. Um, or you talk to a writer that get into like coding, you can get into the zone. There is no zone for what I do because I meet with different people all day long. Um, but, but, you know, I struggled a lot with which path to go. Do I go deep technical path or do I go more the leadership management interaction uh, between the business and the, and the techies? And I, I really struggled with it. Um, I ended up on the leadership side in large part due to advice from mentors. Okay. But also because I, I was always good at trying to explain a very technical thing in layman's terms such that the business leaders understood it. Okay, yeah. And that's kind of a unique skill. Not a lot of techies can actually break it down and, and explain, you know, a piece of really complicated code that they wrote to somebody that's not technical. And so I had that skill, and not a lot of people have it. So um, I decided to embrace it and go down that path. But I did go back and forth quite a bit. It was, you know, I do miss the quiet. I do miss the getting lost in solving a problem for, you know, and having that quiet time to really think and, and solve a big problem. I have, you know, my job today has got very little quiet time. Yeah, I imagine. So when you did decide to go the business direction and, and obviously ended up as a, an executive at a, at a startup, um, what was that journey like? What were some of the, the challenges that, that you faced and uh, what were some of the lessons that you learned? Yeah. So, you know, I think first and foremost, you have to realize that all businesses, technical or not, are people businesses, right? They succeed or fail by people uh, and the team that you build around you. And I think when you, when, when I grew my first company and we grew it to, you know, over 300 employees, um, the thing that became most aware to me, like right away was when I hire these people, I'm now responsible for these people. Yes. Right. I am my company, the company I founded that I'm a founder of is responsible for these people and their livelihoods. And, you know, if we don't make it, their family might not eat, right? <laughs> it's that serious. Um, and that's a lot for a, you know, 28 year old to take on. Um, yeah, to have 300 people, you know, in the company and, and worried about those types of activities. Um, so that's one of the, the first things is, you know, when you become that leader and you take on the startup is, you know, you're probably trying to change the world in some way. You're solving some problem in the world and you want to have that impact. But, you know, the impact that you have from day one, the minute you hire a single person is you are now responsible for that person. If the company doesn't make it, that's on you and that person's family, you know, could is on you like that's the weight that you have to carry and that's a lot to absorb for a lot of people um 
I don't know that it gets e- any easier, um, but I do, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in teamwork. Um, I'm a big believer in building a strong team. Um, I don't think anybody walks this, this, this journey, entrepreneurial journey alone. Uh, you hear, I read a lot about solopreneurs, but then the day they have, they have, typically have contractors and folks doing a lot of the work for them. And that's a team, regardless of whether they're W2 or 1099, that's a team. And so, you know, for me, it's always about the people. How do I get the best and right people on the bus, so to speak, Jim Collins terms, good to great, um, and get them in the right role and, um, you know, try and figure out, you know, Hopefully, we're solving a really big problem that the team can get passionate about solving, and we can rally around that. We're going to work hard. We're going to play hard. Um, but I think that the hardest shift from working for somebody else to, you know, having your own company and building out that team is is the responsibility factor of other people's lives now depend on you. We're listening to the Difference Makers podcast and a discussion with the creative coach, Jim Bonet. Before we continue, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor in a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah area. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah region or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of your propeller making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now, back to the discussion with Creative Coast Jim Bonet. When you talk about trying to solve a, a problem, how I think the trick with startups a lot of times is, is it's almost a race, right? You, you maybe you find the problem, but you know that there's probably somebody somewhere chasing that same problem. How much is that mm-hmm. figure into it, and um, does it keep you up at night, or did it keep you up at night? Uh, so I guess it it does, and it did. But at the end of the day, one of the things that I've come to learn, you know, I, I've been coaching companies now for almost ten years, so I've helped, you know. Uh, on average, probably the last couple of years, only about 200 companies. But prior to that, in Atlanta, I was helping between 400,000 companies every year is who I was meeting with in individual one-on-one meetings in Atlanta. And so um, one of the things I've learned is competition is good, right? Like if there's nobody doing what you're thinking of doing, if there's quote unquote no competitors, there might right. not be a market there. Might not be a market, yeah. Right? <laughs> right? So maybe nobody really cares about solving that problem, right? Um, so so com- competition's good and healthy. Um, and I think one of the challenges is, is everyone solves the problem different. So yeah, there's this problem. Purchasing takes too long to do a purchasing order. We'll stick with that example. Mm-hmm. Like the way I think about solving it might be one way. The way the two other competitors think about solving it is two different, you know, totally different ways. And so what ends up coming up is stick to your lane, solve the problem the best way you think it should be solved, and and hopefully you're building a better product, right? Yeah. You know, I when I look at and I look at the world a little bit differently because a lot of times when I'm analyzing an industry, I'm analyzing the venture capital activity in that industry. I'm looking at what, you know, uh, investors, venture capitalists, 
you know, uh, corporations that invest in companies um, with other people's money are, are investing in which companies and how many they've done. The reality is there's going to be three to four investments in every space from different venture capitalists, right? If there's a hot topic, there's going to be four plus investments, right? There's, there could be tens of thousands, there could be 30 investments in a topic, purchasing IoT, supply chain logistics, whatever, right? And then the venture capitalists are really betting against each other to see who wins, right? Yeah. And out of that, there's not one winner, right? There's three or four winners that hit it big, right? And then there's another 10 that still create meaningful income for their owners and, and their people, right? And so, so it's not like there's a winner in any of these things. There's lots of winners is the way to think about it. So, so when I'm studying an industry, I'm looking, looking for, okay, has there been any venture capital invested in it? How many deals have gone down on it? Is there still an opportunity for somebody else to get funded if they solve the problem in a different way, mm-hmm. right? And, and how do you do that? So Another thing I find really interesting about technology startups is a lot of them start up with the whole idea of we want to we want to get going and then we want to be acquired. So you're almost like it's it's it seems like for most it's a short term proposition. And maybe that's the whole idea of, okay, well, we are created to solve a problem. Uh, We get to where we've solved that problem. Then maybe we want to move on to something else. And rather than pivot the company, we just have this company get acquired by a bigger company and then do something else. Is that, first of all, my on base when I say that? And second of all, how, uh, how much of, do you think that's a change in a mindset from a more traditional business that maybe is looking to establish itself and, and be there for not just 10 or 15 years, but for generations? So uh, there's a mindset issue to it. I, I would also say that an overnight success in technology is typically five to 10 years. Okay. Okay. So by the time you've heard of somebody, they've probably been at it for two to three years already. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then they sell it. It's five plus years. Um, the very nature of taking angel or venture capital outside capital. And that means that way means that there has to be some sort of liquidity event, right? The company has to be acquired or you have to go public in order for the investors to get their money back. So the very nature of taking that investment from a venture capitalist says that at some point in the future, you're probably going to have to sell the company or go public, mm-hmm. right? And so those that don't succeed in growing a company that can scale to go public end up selling, right? So, but I've worked with plenty of folks that their intent is to go public, right? So um, one of my companies uh, out of Atlanta that I worked with before they even got started, Greenlight, uh, just raised $215 million in their Series C, which makes them a billion-dollar company. Yeah. Right. And he knew from the get go, he's like, I am taking this company public. Right. So he's on that path right now. He's a billion dollar unicorn, just like Uber and, and Airbnb and all these companies are valued at over a billion dollars. Um, and he just got that valuation within the last couple of weeks. He just closed this series C and you know, that, that was his vision from the get go. He wants to take this thing public. He believes in it. It's a, essentially a FinTech play that's education for kids around how to, you know, financial literacy for kids okay. through a mobile app um, and a debit card. So they give them a debit card and the kids can spend money and the, the parents can m- monitor what the kids are spending money and approve or deny 
when they're actually using the card in the middle of the transaction flow. So if your child goes to, I don't know, GameStop, that might be a bad example. I'm not sure GameStop survives the pandemic, but GameStop and tries to buy a game and you don't want them to buy that game, you can actually deny it in the middle of the transa- purchase transaction uh, through the mobile app. So, um, but yeah, they're, you know, they're going for it. So I think there's, you know, there's, uh, certainly a mind shift of what kind of company do you want to grow? You know, do mm-hmm. you want to build a billion dollar company? Um, it's a lot of work, right? It's also a lot of fun. Um, and then there's, there's also the reality that when you take out an outside investment, your journey is not your decision alone, right? Whatever you wish to do, you have to convince the board that that's the right path for the company. Right? When investors take, give you money, they typically take a board seat and ultimately corporations are driven by the board. Now, hopefully the CEO has a seat and hopefully the CEO is influential with the, with the board and the direction of the company. Otherwise, that's why you see CEOs of startups leave and, and move on to something else is at the board and they no longer got along, even yeah. if they were founder. Yeah, sometimes famously, like Steve Jobs, probably the biggest uh, biggest example of that at one point, correct? Correct. I mean, most more recently, you know, the CEO of Uber got fired and they brought in a new yeah. guy, right? So, um, yeah. Well, I want to go ahead and, and shift uh, the discussion now and talk a little bit about what you're doing with, with CETA and the Creative Coast. And you know, CETA, it's in the name, they are economic development. But I know from talking to you, you're not you don't necessarily see yourself as an economic developer. You see yourself as an ecosystems builder. Can you kind of lay out the difference and, and tell us how you go about what you're doing? Yeah. So, again, I do see myself as an ecosystem builder, and I focus on how do you build a great startup community. Um, and, and I think about my two roles. Uh, my role at CETA is really to recruit technology businesses to relocate to the area. And then my role at the Creative Coast is really to support creative technology businesses and the people that work within that space that are already here or move here. Once they're here, how do you support them and build a vibrant community? So that's kind of more the community building aspect of it. Um, You know, when I think about ecosystem building, it's how do you create an environment where these types of businesses thrive and what has to happen um, to, to do so. And, you know, uh, there's actually a book called Startup Communities by Brad Feld, and he mm-hmm. moved to Boulder after 9-11, and he's the founder of the uh, Foundry Group, a venture capital firm, and he and David Cohen from Techstars both moved to Boulder right after September 11, 2001, and they have catalyzed Boulder into a uh, startup community, and there's actually a book on how they did it called Startup Communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boulder is actually the model that I look at, so when I, you know, I'm not, I'm not reinventing the wheel here in Savannah, I'm trying to kind of look at, okay, what, what components do we have? What, what can we strengthen? What do we need to pull in? Um, but Boulder is about the same size as Savannah. There's about 350,000 people in the MSA. The, it's got about the same number of students. So we have about 60,000 students. Boulder has about 55,000 students from the various universities. Uh, Boulder's got a really attractive downtown um, area, although it's primarily kind of one street and things up a bit. We've got a gorgeous downtown, obviously, with <laughs> all our beautiful squares and parks. Um, we've got the river. 
Um, we've got the beaches and the creeks for kayaking and boating and all, you know, all the uh, gorgeous outdoor activities surrounding the water. Boulder's got all this gorgeous activity around mountains. Uh, so high quality life. So we've got a lot of similarities, yet Boulder's considered one of like the top 10 startup towns in, in the country, right? So, and, and we're not, right? So you look at, at it and you go, okay, we have the assets, right? We have all the assets to be successful at that. So what do we need to do to activate this? Um, and so I think about, you know, what types of activities are we doing to build a community? And those are things like, um, unfortunately, a lot of this happened, used to happen in person, so I struggle a little bit, but it's, you know, it's meetups, you know, it's one million cups. It's, we do an entrepreneur's night, we do she hustles, we have mental office hours. You know, we have the Geekend Conference slash Grit Conference, right? And those are community building activities. Um, you know, there's educational activities to support the, the ecosystem. So right now, uh, Creative Coast is doing one educational activity for entrepreneurs, techies, or creatives every week via Zoom. Um, we have been doing that in person before, but now it's via Zoom. Um, so pro providing educational activities. Um, around that, which is also community building. It's things like BizPitch that's coming up that Creative Coast has partnered with some with SCORE to identify high potential entrepreneurs. It's things like the Idea Accelerator Bootcamp, which Creative Coast runs with APDC. Um, that, that is actually a 14-week kind of accelerator-type program for idea stage entrepreneurs that we run in the winter every year. So it's all this activity around community building. And then it's um, and, and community building for me is a lot about, okay, to have a successful technology startup, I need a techie coder. I need a marketing slash UX design person, and I need a business person, right? Those three people, those are the three skill sets you need to have a to start a successful tech company, right? So if I can get those three people in the room, at three people that are passionate about a similar problem in the room, then maybe magic happens mm -hmm. because maybe, you know, I don't know, three to five years from now, they start a startup. Right. So once we're catalyzing that activity of these, these people, individuals of these skill sets coming together, the entrepreneurs, the technical people, and the, the creative folks coming together, then we start thinking about, okay, if you're forming a startup, what do you need? Aside, you know, you need talent. Okay, so we've right. got talent, right? We've got SCAD. We've got Georgia Southern University. We have a lot of executive talent. Uh, that's become really clear through the pandemic of uh, a lot of folks have reached out to me that work for really big corporations, Oracle, Salesforce, Microsoft, that actually, you know, their, their home office is in Washington, D.C. or New York, but they choose to live in Savannah. And prior to, you know, the end of March this year, they were flying out of the Savannah airport every Monday morning and coming back Thursday or Friday and, right. and spending their weekends in Savannah. So there's a surprising number of people that do that every week and now they're home. So that's awesome because we can tap into them as executive talent. And, you know, we've recently, I recently introduced with CETA remote worker incentives. So if you're a remote tech worker and you've got three to 10 years plus experience and you're, you can work from anywhere, your company, Twitter, Google, Facebook, sure. all these companies that said you can work anywhere, why not hashtag to Savannah? So um, we've been encouraging people to, to actually move to Savannah and do their remote work here. So that'll build that, that group of talent that has three to 10 years experience and build out uh, a stronger tech talent uh, pipeline. The next thing any startup needs is money, right? 
Um, so how do we get access to capital for our companies? And you know, there's two ways to think about that. One is customers. So how do we activate the larger corporations in Savannah to play with startups, to take a risk, to, to take on a, you know, a pilot program with a startup, you know, whether that's the port or Great Dane or Gulfstream, um, the hospital systems for healthcare technology, right? There's a lot of potential customers in Savannah, Georgia that a startup would love to have as their first customer. So how do we open those doors? And with my CETA hat on, that, get, that gets a little bit easier because CETA has relationships with all those companies, right? Um, so that's one path to capital is customers. Get us customers, right? The other path to capital is investment. Uh, this is this is someplace where we're a little weak. Um, you know, we we have a lot of high net worth individuals, and we do have an angel group, the uh, Ariel Southeast Angel Partners, um, which is is still active. Um, they traditionally have not made a lot of investments in Savannah-based companies, mostly because they primarily invest in healthcare. We have not had a lot of healthcare-focused startups. Um, people invest in what they know. So if you're a re- retired doctor, you're probably going to invest in medical yeah. <laughs> software or devices, right? And so we have to broaden that. That's an area where we know we need to focus. And so, you know, one of the things that I did last year was I applied for a federal grant through the Creative Coast, um, and we received it. So uh, we have $300,000 coming in from the federal government matched with $390,000 locally in services and actual cash to start a seed fund in the region. We've called it the Bridge Fund. Um, We did put it on hold. So uh, I actually have a call Thursday with the fund manager to discuss taking it off hold. We were in the stages to start thinking about finalizing the fund and actually raising money uh, mid-March. <laughs> so obviously not great times. Uh, I, I did call my contact at the Economic Development Authority for the federal government, and I said, "What do we do?" And they were able to allow us to put it on hold for a year. So we've kind of like frozen it. We've touched no money. All that three hundred thousand dollars is sitting out there waiting for us to ask to use it. And we're going to start having some conversations about reactivating that uh, this fall. So you know, did not see it as a good opportunity in March um, to try and raise money with what was going on. So it kind of took a backseat to that. Um, you know, and so the, that's kind of how I think about helping startups is, how, you know, how do we build out this pipeline of talent, pipeline of money, customers, and or investors. And then the last thing we mean is office space, right? Um, and that's kind of debatable today. <laughs> Most yeah. tech companies would say, we don't really need office space today. That being said, if you do need office space, uh, you know, Creative Coast moved to the no- novel co-work at 2 East Bryan, and we have a, a really nice suite on the first floor where we can, once again, once things open up, we can have events for 30 to 45 people. Um, but the whole fourth floor and fifth floor are co-working and, and small offices. Right now it's mostly small offices. I don't think they're actually selling any co-working memberships because they don't they want everybody in private offices during COVID-19, um, but but they are open. People go there every day. Um, great offices, really fast internet, great amenities, and, and when you rent an office there, everything's included and it's short term. So it's a you know, you know, minimum 30-day, one-month commitment, but you know, upwards to three with pretty flexible terms. 
So you get your furniture, you get your internet, you get the janitorial service, everything's included in that one price, and it makes it really easy for startups because as a startup, you may be three people today, and you may be plans to be 50 people in six months, but you may actually only be 20 people in six months, and then it might take three years to get to 50 people, right? So you need a little bit of flexibility. If you go find a, a lease for a space for 50 people and you're not at 50 people yet, then you're burning cash that you don't need to, ca- to, to burn. So you've got to be somewhat uh, long-term leases are not great for startups. So this is a great place um, for that. And then I'm, I'm also in talks with a lot of different organizations that, and, and private entities that are talking about doing some interesting things in Savannah as well. So, you know, my, my vision for Savannah starts to look like uh, I'm going to call them innovation hubs mm-hmm. that we have multiple innovation hubs in different neighborhoods throughout Savannah that are all uh, focused on a different industry. So I, you know, I've been part of the logistics tech corridor and we did the logistics innovation hub study with Georgia Southern University, which came back and said, yes, we should in fact build a, a, a physical space for this logistics innovation work that we're doing somewhere between eight and 25,000 square feet. So, you know, I kind of envision a innovation hub around logistics in Savannah proper, but towards the port, right? Mm-hmm. Um, would that make sense, right? And then, you know, or there's some talk of a food incubator in the Starland District. Um, there's some talk around a minority-focused uh, incubator innovation space uh, over on near MLK. There's some talk about a um, energy tech innovation space, you know, over uh, kind of just east of downtown. And so what I'm starting to see is um, private individuals, successful entrepreneurs giving back to the community by launching uh, uh, innovation hubs in their industry of focus. And uh, I kind of look at my role with the Creative Coast and probably with CETA hoping to um, connect all of those spaces such that we have a vibrant community together. Again, you are listening to a conversation with the Creative Coast Jen Bonet on the Difference Makers podcast. While Jen is catching her breath for a moment, I want to invite you to subscribe to savannahnow.com. Hold on now. I've got a deal for you. For a limited time, podcast listeners get the first month free and pay just $7.99 a month after that. That's an inexpensive way to reconnect with your community one story at a time. You'll get the latest from Savannah City Hall, find out what's going on with our schools, Catch the latest sports happenings and enjoy a blend of diverse, insightful opinion pieces from our many state, local, and national contributors. Visit savannahnow.com slash digital only offer to sign up. That's savannahnow.com slash digital only offer. Now here's the rest of the Difference Makers interview. Yeah, I want to spend a lot of time on the logistics corridor, but before we get to that, I I am, you know, you talk about incentives, you're talking about all these different things. What does it take to get that critical mass? Because I think that's really probably what it is, right? When you look at Boulder, whether it's Boulder, Colorado or Atlanta or, you know, Research Triangle in, in North Carolina, somehow these places reached critical mass where everybody said, that's, I'm going to do a tech startup and that's the place I want to be. What are the, is it just finding the right incentives? Is it landing the first couple of, of successful companies and just building on it? How much of it is, I guess, how much of it is, is, can be planned and strategized and much of it is just, just, it just happens. 
so that is part of what is the challenge of my job, right? I'm not sure that I'm ultimately responsible for the success <laughs> that I'm trying sure. to make, right? At the end of the sure. day, I can I can do all these things and, and yeah. nobody can move here. Right. <laughs> so that does make it a little challenging. You know, I could be working my butt off and nothing happens. Um, but I do think I am first and foremost an entrepreneur. Right. So the way I think of things is about an entrepreneur, right? And an entrepreneur is going to choose a place that they want to choose, period. Right. That's why we have some successful companies in tech that are already here. I call them hidden gems because not a lot of people know about them. But, you know, we've got two 40 plus people tech firms in Savannah, Georgia, right, that have both been around probably 10 plus years. It's just nobody talks about them, right? On Point Digital, e-learning platform down on the south side, right? And then CTG, uh, Covenant Technology Group, which is in uh, off Barnard, right downtown. Um, but, you know, they're doing uh, healthcare-related software for hospitals and large office practices. Um, but they're like a hidden gem. I mean, I literally found Covenant Technology Group by, by seeing a little tiny placard on the doorbell stuff, you know, ringing the doorbell and going up and asking them what they did. Like, nobody knew they were here. So how do you get people, like, because they're entrepreneurs, they want to live in Savannah, they launched businesses that they've grown and scaled to, to their definition of success and, and have great jobs for people locally, and but nobody knows about them, right? So how do we get somebody talking about the story of those companies? How do we get more of those companies here? Um, and, and I think, you know, ultimately, it's is Savannah the type of place where an entrepreneur wants to live? Um, and, and can we provide, can they be successful here? And I think we're in the process of proving that, yes, you can, right? Um, we know people want to live here. We know I've got, you know, 75 people that have signed up for remote worker incentives. You know, 12 are already here. Um, so we know people want to live here. I'm getting more and more phone calls from people that are like, I'm in New York. i got to get out. I'm in Chicago. Don't want to be here this winter. Got to get out. Uh, and some of these people are not just the possibility to move here as remote workers. Some of these people have companies. Right. So I think I look at my life right now as I've been pushing a boulder up a hill for mm-hmm. two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm 100 feet from the precipice. I'm 100 feet from the top. Mm-hmm. And all I need is one or two of these entrepreneurs or companies that I'm currently working with and projects that I'm currently working on, including around logistics tech, to actually come into fruition. And we're all going to be chasing the boulder down the hill. So <laughs> right. I think we're on the cusp of it. Um, and I think I, I almost hate to say this out loud, but I, you know, I believe that this COVID-19, the pandemic, the, the world shutting down for six to eight weeks, the way that the city, uh, the mayor and the council led through that, uh, publicly got out to the world and people are interested in Savannah right now, people that that are in New York, that are in Chicago, that are in San Francisco, are interested in coming to Savannah for the quality of life and, and uh, that we have, and in part because of the way that Savannah has handled the pandemic. Right. Let's spend the balance of the time talking about the logistics technology quarter. You wrote a piece for the for the business page just recently, just a couple weeks ago, that talked a lot about some of the findings that were that were coming from the study and the way forward. Of course, the state has put some 
some serious dollars toward helping to develop a logistics technology corridor here. And uh, it seems like it, it, they finagle it and they kind of massage it a little bit every year, but I, I, I take it they're massaging it for the better. Uh, I know that this was at least a vision before you. How has it progressed since you got here and and how close are we on and ter- you talk about being on the cusp? Is this corridor ready to take off and what kind of difference will it make in Savannah? Sure. Um, so I've been all in on the corridor since I got here. I was actually involved in the corridor task force before I got here through my old role at ATDC and mm-hmm. having a staff member here in Savannah at the time. Um, the study came back and, again, says, yes, we should do it. And, uh, you know, looked at comparisons between ourselves and Chattanooga and Greenville and Charleston and Jacksonville um, and basically said, you know, per capita, we actually have more software engineers in town, which I was like, wow, I did not know that. Um, And we have more logistics workers in town. So we have have the talent to, to do it. The study came back and said that we need more corporate engagement. So that's one of my primary focuses is how do we make sure that, you know, the port and Great Dane and other companies are truly in and whether or not they're currently have like a local headquarters or office or whether or not they're somewhere else in the state. So I'll be like looking for Norfolk Southern and some other folks like that to get engaged. You know, I think the task force prior to me joining was primarily focused on the incentives and and what we could do at the state level. I focus more a little bit about what we can do from a, from a community building perspective. Right. Um, And I, I think we're still not where we need to be there. Um, You know, we have a number of quite, you know, meetup groups or organizations that pull together logistics workers uh, in town, but we don't have one that focuses on logistics technology workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to see that we were starting that in February and uh, at the Creative Press, we're going to have a logistics tech meetup and have all the tech workers from the logistics industry get together once a month. And, and we kind of failed at that because of COVID so far. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting some community building around specifically people that are in a tech industry within logistics getting together and starting to build that little subset of that community. Um, I think, you know, we're working really well with uh, both Savannah Tech uh, Savannah, and the University System of Georgia, especially Georgia Southern University uh, and Savannah State to think about how do we um, think about the education components, cradle graves that are going to need to be necessary for the logistics jobs of the future. Not the logistics jobs today. We already do a great job of that. But what do these jobs look like in the future, right? Ten years from now, what does a logistics job look like when there's automation in a warehouse, when there's probably more automation at the port? So how can we get ahead of that curve, create programs so that people don't get displaced, but people move up into these new technology jobs? Mm -hmm. Um, So we're working really hard there. Uh, that, then there's this innovation acceleration component, which we've got, you know, the study is done, and um, we're actually working with a major accelerator program slash VC out of the West Coast right now that I don't really want to mention just yet, but we're working with them. We have a pro- we have, I have a contract from them, and we're going to be joining. Uh, they're running all their virtual programs virtually right now because of COVID-19, so it gives us an opportunity to engage with their supply chain and logistics program and meet you know, 24 supply chain logistics startups over the next 14 months and actually engage with other big with corporations that are in that program and, and see if we can't put Savannah on their radar. So it will be an 
hopefully we'll get that done and, and really start working with that from a corporate engagement perspective around this idea of building an innovation center that is not just startups but also corporations. Mm -hmm. So we're working, that's my primary focus is in that column and then there's the incentives. Um, CETA already has incentives that would apply to any technology firm that moves to the area, but can we get more incentives from a state perspective? Um, and that probably won't happen this year just because of the, the budget, you know, the COVID-19 is, the budget was in bad shape before COVID-19 and the budget seemed, the state budget's in even worse shape. So getting funding from the state is probably not viable until possibly 2022 or so. So, you know, we've got a lot of projects in the works. I'm very optimistic about it. I think we'll have some really big announcements coming in the not too distant future around this partnership with this venture capital firm slash accelerator program. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all in and I'm excited about it. I think it's a great opportunity. And, you know, for me, I look at it a little different than a lot of folks is I see the change coming, period, yes. right? I see automation coming to these warehouses and manufacturing. And I think a lot of people are trying to think like, okay, that's not going to happen here, you know, but a thousand person warehouse job is probably going to have less than 300 jobs mm -hmm. in 10 years, right? So how do we proactively educate the workforce that's in those jobs today such that they can have the jobs of the future that might be tuning the robotic arm or whatever, or programming the robotic arm or fixing it or whatever that looks like. I don't even know, right? <laughs> um, but that's, above, that's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> but uh uh, but we're working with experts like Dr. Mark Scott at Georgia Southern University and folks that, that are experts in this space and helping us like craft, okay, what, what is, you know, what does logistics look like in 10 years? What, you know, what, what kinds of jobs are going to be there and how do we make sure that we're ahead of the curve? Yes, and I think it's incredibly important to think about that because if you watch the news, you know the port is, is growing like gangbusters. I don't, at this current rate, this could be the most popular port uh, in the country, or maybe right behind LA Long Beach within the next 10 years, you have all of these distribution centers and warehouses. Uh, the companies are putting them here, and, and obviously they require a lot of worker, but that's not necessarily a, a high wage worker. And then you talk about what you're talking about in terms of automation. In terms of what could come out of the logistics technology corridor, I think people have a hard time with kind of wrapping their heads around what maybe logistics technology is in terms of maybe it's RFID tags that help move uh, the help move product from point A to point B. What are some of the things that you kind of envision could come out of that corridor and how, how can it help the people that, as you said, are that have the potential to be displaced by automation and other things as the port and the business grows? Yeah. So, um, one of the first things we did when we talked about logistics technology, we had a list of bullet point of different mm -hmm. things that might, might fall into logistics technology because they're in a, really, it's really kind of uh, vague, right? Right. And so, you know, it is data science and big data and machine learning related to anything that's logistics type mm -hmm. data, right? It's blockchain, it's internet of things, it's autonomous vehicles, it's drones for delivery, right? It's, there's so many things that it can be, right? It's any it's software that's related to supply chain and moving product, you know, from one place to another. 
And so one of the things that we've started to try and do is, okay, and, and the study told us to do this, is logistics is too big, right? We're going to need to figure out what niche within logistics Savannah does best. And when you really think about it, what Savannah does best is what the world calls intermodal. Okay. Right. But intermodal is not very sexy, right? So I'm trying to brand it as first mile logistics. It's uh-huh. when the container comes into the port, to the gets to the highway. That's what we do best. Or gets to the railroad, right? That's what we do best. That that transition of from coming off of a ship, getting placed someplace and sent out into the world, right? So I'm calling it first mile logistics. I'm hoping it sticks. Everyone's talking about last mile logistics. Last so mile. Yeah. talking about last mile logistics. Nobody's talking about first mile logistics. So we can lead in first mile logistics is my vision. Um, and, and, you know, I think, you know, I look at it today and I go, you know, gosh, autonomous trucks, right? They're coming. They're being tested in Arizona and California. They're coming, right? right? They may not come on the port, onto the port, right? That's the longshoreman. And they may not come onto property because that's short distances and chaotic. But if you're driving from here to Atlanta, why not have an autonomous vehicle? It's the world's most boring road. That's so, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> but... I envision a world where there's a, a call center of former truck drivers maintaining the roads, like air traffic does for the for the um, skies. For sure. yeah. Right, right. Highway control. Um, I, you know, drone pilots. Right. I see a, 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 you know, center out near the airport where we've got, you know, 400 people flying drones to do deliveries. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, those are things. Those are skills that we can teach truck drivers or or folks that are used to driving a forklift in a warehouse to do. Yeah. Um, right. And so I think we have to be creative. I think we have to be inventive. I think we can say that we can do this better than anybody else. You know. And I think we have to be forward thinking. I'm, I am relying a lot on folks like Dr. Mark Scott at George Southern University to help me and the rest of the world understand what is coming in logistics such that we can figure out training programs to help with that. And, you know, the truth is at this point, 10 years out is a guess, right? But hopefully Mm -hmm. you make some guesses and some of them are right, some of them are wrong, but the ones that are right hopefully uh, create enough high-wage jobs to to be meaningful in the area. Right. And forward thinking is the key, right? Because if, if by the time, if you get behind, by the time you catch up, you're, you're not really, you're not really caught up. You're, you're just going to yeah. be behind. So that's a, that's a great way to look at it. Well, we will watch this uh, eagerly over the coming years. And we really appreciate what you do and what the Creative Coast is doing and what CETA is doing. And uh, we uh, really enjoyed having you come on and share some of these, some of these things and these ideas, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, I enjoyed being on it. And um, anyone in the broader community that wants to get involved and wants to help with this, um, I'm always looking for people to collaborate with. So I can be reached at Jen at thecreativecoast.org. That's a wrap on this episode of Difference Makers. Thanks to the Creative Coast, Jim Bonet, and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as Plant Riverside District Developer Richard Kessler, Savannah's go-to authority on hurricanes, storm modeler Chuck Watson, 
And convenience store magnet Greg Parker. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. On behalf of myself and producers Asha Gilbert and Zach Dennis, thank you for listening. The next Difference Makers will post November the 20th. (laughs) 